Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. They began feeding false addresses to the AVM and said, oh, see, the hit rate is below the required percentage, but they would literally put in just nonsense addresses. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you holding up so far? I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I went outside today. <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice. First time in what, weeks? <laughs> <laughs> it had actually been a few days. It had been since Sunday. Although I should say for our listeners that it's not like I can just walk out the door and I've just been refusing to walk out the door. I have to, I live in a building. I have to go down the elevator. There are cases of corona in my building and the latest, you know, I love to update you on my building drama, although I usually do it before we start recording. But um, the latest is that they're fixing one of the elevators. So now everybody's wow. waiting for basically one elevator, except oh, you're not supposed to have more than two people in the elevator at a time. Right. So <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting very complicated uh, to get outside. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, and I was going to say that, uh, so, you know, uh, we've all been working from home more and I, I've uh, realized that uh, um, I've got to watch how I uh, use my office voice around the house because uh, let's just say that when I'm in the office, I, I use one type of language. And when I'm at home, I usually use a different type of language. <laughs> and my kids have caught me several times uh, using my office language and then gotten on me. So the uh, the swear jar is, is filling up fast. I was going to say, this sounds like a good time for a swear jar. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, uh, well, let, well, Yvonne, let's go ahead and introduce our guests. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, two uh, just fantastic trial lawyers. When I was... Uh, Reading their accomplishments and, and their superlatives, uh, I mean, it's a, it, it is a list and I'm going to go through and, and talk about uh, a, a number of their, their accomplishments. But let's, Yeah, and, but, I, and uh, I have to say, Steve, yeah. that, that I already felt lazy because I'm stuck at home <laughs> right, and then right. I read about them and I felt extra lazy. Yes, <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we, we are talking to two partners from the law firm of Sussman Godfrey. Uh, we are talking to Kalpana Srinivasan and Max Tribble. Uh, Kalpana is a partner in the Los Angeles office of, uh, of Sussman Godfrey. She is a graduate from a, a little school up north called Yale, uh, which I've heard of before, and then and then went to law school at another uh, a pretty good law school named Stanford University, where she was not only the editor of the Law Review, but she was the winner of their moot court competition, uh, went on to clerk for uh, Judge Raymond Fisher in the Ninth Circuit, and then... Um, uh, just looking at all the things that you've, uh, all the awards that you've won, Kalpana, I'm just going to name a few, but you've been given the Cornerstone Award by the Southeastern Asian Bar Association. You were named a 2017 Power Lawyer by the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, you were named as a uh, top uh, a woman lawyer by the Daily Journal in 2016, 2017, 2018. Uh, one of the uh, 75 outstanding uh, woman lawyers. Uh, by National Law Journal, uh, you're uh, both uh, you and Max. Uh, your your uh, group, the Intellectual Property Group, was named uh, Intellectual Property Group of the Year, uh, and then uh, you've been named a Titan of the Plaintiffs Bar by Law 360. Uh, you uh, have been named as one of the top 100 trial lawyers in America by Benchmark, and uh, a and also been named as a trailblazer. 
uh, by the uh, South Asian Bar Association of Southern California. So uh, that was only a few of the, uh, the uh, accomplishments, Kalpana, but, uh, but we're very glad to have you on. Thank you, Stephen. Really glad to be here. Um, well, and let me, uh, I, I don't want to make Max sound like uh, he's hes not just as good. He's also uh, just got a number of, uh, of, of great awards. I mean, uh, first of all, a graduate from the University of Texas. Uh, and I should say Max is a partner in the uh, Houston office of the Sussman Godfrey uh, Law Firm and is on the executive committee of Sussman Godfrey. And if uh, hopefully our listeners will remember that we had a great interview with uh, their founding partner, Steve Sussman, uh, a while back. And um, but so not only did Max go to University of Texas for undergrad, but then uh, went on to go to a pretty good law school called Harvard. Um, so uh, and then have been named by the National Law Journal as a winning litigator, uh, have been named as a top 500 attorney uh, in America by benchmark litigation, uh, a super lawyer since 2005. You've been named by Law Dragon as a leading plain, uh, leading plaintiff financial lawyer. Uh, you've been named your uh, your out your intellectual property group was uh, named most outstanding. Uh, you've been named as a local litigation star by bench, benchmark litigation and a top trial lawyer in Houston by H Texas Magazine. And again, uh, Max, that's just a, a few of the uh, awards that you've you've given. But uh, thank you both for coming on. Certainly, so glad to be here. Um, well, and uh, and I just want to make sure that everybody's doing well during the during the lockdown. And uh, and uh, I guess you guys, uh, one of you is in Houston, and one of you is in Los Angeles. How are how are things going with your practices? Good. Uh, things have been yeah, things have really been progressing. I, I really respect the courts that have tried to create some normalcy by holding deadlines and keeping parties to them. Uh, obviously, the live hearings uh, have been taken off calendar, but in a lot of instances, the courts have either found a way to work around that by ruling on the papers or set up video hearings. And I know Max has been involved in some video hearings he can tell you about. Uh, but I think it is really, uh, you know, been a great hallmark of our judges that they're so committed to trying to keep things on track and not letting them go into some abyss where we don't know when these cases will get back um, to normal. So, I, I, you know, by and large, Max and I have a case that's set for trial this summer and our trial deadlines are proceeding as they would otherwise. And uh, I think that's a really great thing, frankly, uh, to make sure that you know people's cases and dockets are moving forward and they know the court system is, is working hard for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Max, I didn't know if you wanted to add to that. No, I mean, you and I spoke earlier. To me, the most important thing that I appreciate is how hard the courts are working to to keep the cases going, keep the deadlines uh, set as long as uh, as they can, and, and really embracing this uh, video technology for video hearings. Uh, you know, I've had a, about a dozen video hearings in the last. Uh, I don't know, three, four weeks. And uh, one of my judges is proposing a video trial. It's a bench trial uh, that I think will happen later in the summer. It just depends on, you know, whether the courts open before then. And, um, and, and at our firm in particular, you know, we have a Wednesday meeting of the entire firm uh, 
every week and we've converted that to a video hearing so everybody can kind of <laughs> see everybody and we've even had video happy hours uh, right. and things like that so we're adjusting yep yep we've definitely tried to do the video happy hours with our firm and it it, it is a a lot of fun yvonne's been giving us assignments on uh, on <laughs> tv shows that we need to watch and then report uh, back on like tiger king and things like that <laughs> it, it's it's worked well it's been a nice way to see everybody's faces um i think another cool thing that's happening in addition to that how courts are trying to make things work is um Culpana and max i don't know if you guys have noticed this but i feel like the um, the plaintiff's bar, and maybe it's happening on the defense side too, has really come together in terms of helping each other with creative ways to work during this time, like sharing their knowledge about different ways to approach um, exhibits and video depositions or uh, video mediations, video conference mediations, um, or, or proposed orders that they're using to handle like swearing in witnesses remotely. I think that, I think that's been another cool, you know, sort of silver lining about this weird time we're in. Yeah. Yvonne, I totally agree. I've seen uh, lawyers sharing information about, you know, as you said, what's been effective deposition and mediation tools. Um, Max and I do a lot of intellectual property work. So uh, we've gotten feedback from other lawyers about how they're handling their source code review, which is usually something you go and do uh, live um, and in a monitored environment. Uh, how do you adjust for that when you can't have people come and do that on site somewhere? Um, <clears throat> so I do think there's been a lot of collaboration and I think lawyers have been uh, adjusting the way they think about, you know, what has to be done and what has to be done in what time frame and prioritizing the key work they need to advance the case, which of course we try to do all the time anyway, but it's right. really sharpened the focus on that. Like which of these depositions absolutely must occur before we get to this phase of the case, which could maybe be tabled, you know, which could be done by written discovery. Uh, and I think collectively that's helped us, you know, I'm sure in a lot of professional ways to, to think about what we really need when we're putting a case together. Yeah, and the absolutely. only thing I would add is that I think that in general, uh, that both sides of the bar have been a little more congenial, a little more relaxed about extensions and working out protocols and things like that, which I think is nice. I totally yeah. agree. We we were talking about that in one of the, I think the first episodes that we recorded after this sort of got started and it's you know you want to be that person who's still, you know, you're pushing your cases, you're doing what's best for your client, but you're also understanding that the, you know, the lawyer on the other side is probably also trying to find toilet paper or hand sanitizer somewhere <laughs> and take care of their family. So, I think everybody's been pretty reasonable with each other. Hopefully. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into our uh, get into the case that we're here to talk about. So the case that uh, that Max and, and Kalpana tried uh, was called Title Source Inc. versus House Canary Inc., formerly known as Canary Analytics Analytics Inc. Uh, it was tried back in uh, January through March of 2018 in Bear County, Texas, which is uh, uh, San Antonio. Uh, area and it was an intellectual property case and uh, and uh, I've, I've got to tell you, uh, uh, Max and Calvin, it, it I, I've handled uh, one uh, significant intellectual property case in my career uh, that we got the week before trial and it the facts of your case sounded so similar to the facts 
of our case where it was we had a small startup uh, who had come up with a new product, had met with this bigger company, you know, were sharing it with them, was you know trying to work out licensing agreements, getting strung out, strung along, and then next thing they know, you know, they basically tell them that uh, that that uh, you know they already had a product, they didn't want anything to do with them, and they realized that they had just copied their product. But I'll, let me get into the uh, the specific facts of this case. So your client, so and that's the first thing I should mention is. Uh, I think you're the first case we have uh, that you are actually uh, representing the initial defendants or the defendants in the case, House Canary Inc., uh, who was sued by Title Source Inc. for, um, I think, uh, 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 breaching their agreement and maybe, uh, I, I think, initially uh, claiming that they had uh, disclosed some confidences or something like that. Uh, but House Canary Inc. had um, come up with a um, what was called an uh, automated valuation model, which essentially for real estate uh, would allow appraisers or uh, appraisals to be done in a much quicker way uh, rather than taking a week or two weeks for an appraisal to be done. They could literally be done in uh, minutes to hours where they would, you know, uh, basically have like an iPad, be able to uh, pull up comparables and so they got into, they had developed this technology. Uh, there was a lot of uh, trade secrets in here and, and a lot of valuable information. And uh, a title source, uh, which was a, a big company that was associated with Quicken Loans uh, that basically uh, offered title insurance around, uh, around the, uh, the country and would do appraisals as well around the country, um, approached them. Uh, about working out some sort of a deal together. And of, of course, initially for House Canary, this was a, um, uh, a you know, just a great deal because this uh, large company uh, was was now uh, trying to get into some sort of business relationship with them. So they did all of the right things and they first had a non-disclosure agreement signed where they specifically protected their trade secrets and where they specifically uh, said you couldn't reverse engineer it. Um, and then eventually that goes into a, a software licensing agreement uh, where there is an agreement for uh, a title source to use uh, uh, their... Uh, uh, it, AVM uh, for their their appraisals and uh, and we're going to be charging about thirty dollars per appraisal uh, and uh, long story short and I'll let you guys fill in the specific facts but basically they they were together for about a year and it seemed like uh, the money was being delayed by title source uh, and they kept asking for more and more information. Uh, and then uh, finally, I think about a year or maybe a year and a half after they had gotten into uh, this agreement together, uh, the uh, title source came back to them with what uh, basically what they called a retrade where they wanted to rewrite the software licensing agreement that basically would allow title source to uh, offer some derivative products and, uh, and then uh, we're going to actually decrease their what they were offering for uh, the technology uh, by a lot. And that raised uh, uh, red flags for um, House Canary. And what it turned out had happened uh, was that uh, during this whole time where they were asking for more and more information, basically uh, Title Source was downloading uh, all of their data. Uh, I think it, uh, 
the evidence was about 150,000 reports with uh, millions of data points. Uh, and then I'll let you all explain what the similarity score and complexity score was, but essentially took their technology and then were trying to come out with their own valuation model uh, and, and basically were just stealing their technology. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then for some reason, I mean, I, and, and I, I read an article about it where basically, you know, the larger company, uh, comes up with a number of, uh, tactics in order to try and drive the price down of the smaller company. One is to not pay them, which had been done here Two is, uh, to sue them for non-performance, uh, which was what was done here. And, um, and so title source sues house canary. Uh, and then House Canary finds, uh, found, finds Kalpana and Max and, um, and you, uh, defended the case, but also filed, uh, a counterclaim, uh, for a number of things, including, uh, fraud, trade secret misappropriation. And, uh, the overall verdict, uh, that, that came back was first of all, House Canary was not found, found liable for anything. And title source was found that, uh, they had, committed fraud and that they had stolen trade secrets. And so they were, there was a 201, $201.6 million verdict for stealing trade secrets, a $33.8 million uh, verdict for fraud, and then a uh, punitive damages verdict for the stealing of the trade secrets of $403.2 million, uh, and then a punitive damages mar uh, uh, verdict for the fraud of $67.6 million for a total verdict of seven hundred six point two. Uh, million dollars. Um, so, I, uh, Max and Kalpana, I know I've gone through a lot of facts there, and I'm sure I've screwed up some. But, uh, but is that the the basic uh, facts of that of the case? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a summary, and so there's a lot more to it and a lot right. more detail. Uh, but uh, that's essentially uh, correct. Uh, you know, House Canary had worked for Title Source uh, for about two years. And uh, when they started sending invoices for the bills, and, they, and as you said, they were excited to work for Title Source because, you know, it's the uh, largest title company in the United States. It's the sister company of Quicken Loans, uh, the largest residential mortgage lender in the United States. And so they were, you were exactly right. They were excited to show off their technology and uh, get this, you know, potentially huge piece of business. Uh, but at the end of the day, it turned out that, uh, title source never intended to pay. And, you know, they only wanted our technology. Uh, there, there is, uh, a nuance here. There were, there were kind of two sets of, uh, general buckets of technology. One was the appraiser application, which was something that an appraiser could take out on the field on an iPad and pull up comparable sales and, you know, do, uh, uh, drawings, pull in the, uh, the, the tax data about square footage and number of rooms and this and that, and then adjust it all and then do the standard, uh, uh, appraisal calculations and do it all very quickly. That was, uh, one thing, uh, that was, they were interested in at the beginning of the relationship. But at the end of the day, what they were really interested in was our AVM, the automated valuation model, which is um, uh, that's where uh, you take an address, say one, two, three Main Street, and 
punch it in. And literally in less than a second, it produces an eight-page report that has up to 100 comparable sales ranked according to how similar or how comparable they are to the property, uh, a forecast of uh, uh, future values, and most importantly, uh, what has turned out to be a very accurate estimate of the value of the property. And it does it in less than a second. And the reason they were very interested in that is because Title Source was providing valuations to the Quicken Loans bankers. And so the Quicken Loans banker is sitting, someone calls in and says, I want to refinance my house. And uh, they go, okay, give me your address, 123 Main Street. How much do you owe? And then within an instant, they can get a, a pretty good idea of whether there's equity in the house or whether it's underwater. In other words, whether this is a lead that uh, Quicken wants to pursue. You know, it came in, it came out in testimony at trial that uh, Quicken Loans was losing, I don't remember the exact percentage, but uh, like 30% of their leads or maybe even much more, uh, they were losing the leads because they couldn't get valuations back fast enough in order to make a preliminary decision. And so that's what they were really interested in. And as you say, uh, House Canary very carefully insisted on a non-disclosure agreement and even stricter non-disclosure, non-use, non-reverse engineering provisions in the subsequent license agreements. And uh, uh, all of that, you know, is shown by the fraud verdict. But I mean, the, the evidence is is overwhelming that they never intended to abide by those restrictions. And then at the end of the day, uh, as House Canary, you know, uh, began to wonder why they weren't getting paid, uh, title source sued House Canary preemptively and actually served House Canary CEO at a mortgage industry trade show in front of all of his customers and potential customers uh, in order to embarrass and intimidate him. But anyway, as you say, it backfired in this case. And, you know, the jury saw through all that. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. 
Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So we, we, we have, there's so much to dig into, but I want to make sure both that I understand and that our listeners understand a little bit about the the AVM, the automated valuation model. The the closest thing that I could think of, and I saw this discussed in the appellate brief a little bit as a comparison, is like on Zillow when you when there's like an estimate for what a property um, is worth. You know, there's the price that it's being sold for or whatever, and then there's the Zestimate or whatever they call it. But my understanding is that what House Canary was doing was a lot more um, maybe comp complex and more accurate than, than that, but that the idea was similar. But, you know, uh, there well, are a lot uh, of ways. Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, yeah, you can generate um, sort of an estimate for a home value, but, but the real meat of it, the core of it is how accurate your algorithms and the analytics that go into it are. And House Canary had a long history um, already before it came into this relationship of working in analytics, data analytics, the research team there had experience in that, and also how you then take massive volumes of real estate data to come up with uh, a valuation model that gives you the most accurate results and pulls the improper variables, cancels out other noise that, you know, they may, there may be variables that um, you would put into the algorithm that actually are unhelpful and don't yield or don't account for important historic variables. And so uh, what, what House Canary brought to the table was this very deep understanding of how to develop these analytical models and how to utilize data uh, and what one thing that became very clear over the course of the case is that even though Title Source was in the business of working on appraisals and had gathered data from that, it had no clue how to do that. It had no clue how to convert that and turn that into a analytic model. Um, they were completely lost, and there are numerous documents where they admit we have no idea. Brainstorming how to put together a data dictionary which is the the foundation for building a valuation model. Um, you know, they say in their emails, brainstorming this is much harder than we thought it was going to be. Let's just go <laughs> look at house scenarios. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, understanding what to do with data, how to use that to develop uh, a model that is highly accurate, how to use it to evolve a model is was not a skill that they had and is one of, you know, House Canary's hallmarks that it's been very successful in. Uh, and so there, you know, over time, we heard the story, well, you know, they could have used Zillow instead or, but the internal documents show that that's not what they wanted at all. They actually had used other types of value models from other companies that they found insufficiently reliable. And as Max mentioned, 
Um, you know, when you have mortgage, mortgage bankers who are trying to figure out whether to do a refi or what, how much equity is left in a home, it, there it can be meaningful how you know it is meaningful how accurate the ABM is because you don't want to um, you don't want to consummate a bad loan, and so right. they were dissatisfied with what they had seen in the marketplace, and certainly there was never discussion and. TSI's um, CEO testified under oath that they would never use a free a free ABM because what they want is something they can rely on and justify why they made a loan on. Um, and that's really what drew them to House Canary's technology uh, initially. And, um, you know, a kind of a critical backdrop to the story is that they pledged and promised when they executed all the NDA and all these restrictive agreements that they were not in the business of making their own models, that that, you know, that's just not what they do. And uh, they weren't planning to do it. So of course, House Canary built in all the contractual restrictions, but they also have this um, oral representation over and over that this was not title sources business plan when it turned out that it actually was, and they wanted to be able to have their own internal branded model. The document shows their plan before they entered into the contracts the license agreements. It was their plan all along. And then later in litigation, amazingly, they denied that they even had their own AVM. And they denied it over and over again. We kept asking for it, uh, moving to compel. And what happened was uh, we were uh, searching the internet and we came across a Quicken Loans Technology Conference presentation by TSI. Uh, presenting the TSI AVM, the very model that even during the discovery phase of the litigation, they denied existed. And, you know, once we found that, you know, the court started entering uh, orders compelling them right. to produce, you know, the documents. And you found that not in discovery, right? Just like doing your own research and, and poking Correct. around? That Absolutely. Is Wow. And then yeah, so, after there had been a number of witnesses who swore under oath that that they had not developed this, were not developing this, and an AVM did not exist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, just being uh, blatantly untruthful and, and, uh, and uh, you know, in reading this, there's uh, several examples of them getting caught in their in their lies in front of the court and in front of the jury, which obviously uh, uh, helped with your your case. But I mean, I just I, I it always amazes me, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, some um, uh, parties or you know corporations will try to get away with and just expect that you'll you'll never figure out. My 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 favorite was that uh, it looked like from the brief that you sent me that at one point, one of their strategies was to say that it was just one guy. At, at title source who was who was um trying to develop the avm on his own yeah their story yeah. was that they had developed uh, the same thing that house canary had developed using tens of millions of dollars a team of software engineers uh, and two to three years of hard work and diligence uh their story was that one guy who had never done uh, evaluation model before uh, did it by himself uh, in a few weeks. That was yeah, their right. story. He's just a genius. 
right. And and that story came after the prior story, which had been this doesn't exist. Right. We don't right, have a right. valuation model. But once they were caught with a valuation model, then of course the story had to change. And the new story was, well, yes, we have one, but we developed it completely independent of anything we got from House Canary. We built it on our own. We built it with one guy. Um, and at trial, it was simply not credible because uh, everybody who had worked on the House Canary project or the significant players who had worked on the House Canary project were involved in this new model that was, uh, you know, purportedly they claimed was done by one person. But then you'd go and look at the meeting notes and it would say the heroes of our new AVM. And it would list not just that one guy, but every, you know, a whole bunch of people, including people who had been working with House Canary directly. Um, so even that story, which had shifted over time, uh, did not hold up. And, you know, they, they could not show that this was a sole loan developer sitting in an isolated room who built his own AVM. Um, to the contrary, he had a lot of help from people who had been working with our data and our analytics and under the, the contractual relationship. Well, they had a name for it, right? They had like a name. They had like a creative play on 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 House Canary for the team that was like reverse engineering their stuff. The birdcage. Right. Well, we were the bird. We were the birdcage. Because uh, the birdcage is a reference to House Canary because. As they said, they wanted to capture our data. That's why they called it the bird case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the team working on it um, was called the Torchwood team, um, which is a reference to a Doctor Who, right. um, uh, you know, a, a Doctor Who figure. And again, all of these names certainly didn't help to dispel that they were trying to do something that they were clearly not supposed to do. Um, and as Max mentioned, of course, we had an NDA, but we had two other agreements on top of that and, and with additional restrictions on how you could use everything. And so um, it was very clear when they started saying, we're going to call this the birdcage to capture their data, that they were simply didn't care about those very explicit restrictions. I, I guess I'm wondering, because I, I certainly got the, uh, in, in the, the case that I handled before, um, I, I got the impression, and, and I'm wondering if, since you guys do so much of this, it, it, the impression that, you know, this is fairly common in business practices for a large company to basically entice a small company and then use various tactics in order to sort of squeeze them or drain them in, so that they can get their uh, technology at a, at a cheap price. I mean, how often do you, do you see this type of conduct? You know, I've seen it many times. You know, the big company meets with the little company and they say, oh, very interested uh, in your, your product. Uh, we need you to disclose to us the details of exactly how it works so that we can make sure that, you know, it's accurate and that it actually works and, you know, and that it's valid. Okay. And they get all the disclosures and then at the end of the day, they go, you know, maybe they were, I, I remember one case with a, uh, a large software company uh, and they got all the details uh, from the, the smaller company about its, sophisticated uh, software 
And then at the end of the, and they've been talking about a $30 million contract or something like that. And then at the end, they go, we'll give you a million dollars, no running royalty, a million dollars. And we, we have an exclusive, we own all of it. And otherwise we'll just build it ourselves. They, they literally said it uh, to my other client. So. And I think you can take away uh, something from the fact that this company came and sued our client, which right. they never paid our client a dollar. It's not like they were suing them to get money back. Right. Um, but they, uh, they, you know, they went and brought this litigation against the company that they had contractual arrangements with, but had never paid um, to, you know, to see if they could avoid the truth coming to light about what they had done with this information. So it is an an interesting way to view that um, relationship and dynamic where instead of just sitting back and and waiting to see if anything happens, this this big company goes on the offensive and thinks that maybe they'll get a release or somehow um, be, be, get off scot-free on this and the misappropriation issues will never come to light. Right. Um, well, and I, I, so I wanted to ask you when you're putting a case like this together uh, for trial. So, you know, I, in a, in a, uh, a case involving intellectual property, especially this, where you've got a lot of complex terms, how do you guys approach it to, you know, basically we, you know, always, uh, teaches, you know, simplify everything, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, how do you, uh, you know, start honing your facts for the case in order to make sure that the jury can understand, uh, you know, so, sometimes what are some very complex uh, ideas and, and uh, evidence? Well, in this case, we had an extra challenge because we were defendant. And so, the other side got to go first and they spent a lot of time on their affirmative case that we were in breach of contract and that house canary had committed fraud. And so one thing we were really mindful of when it became our turn to put on our case was, look, the jury's heard a lot of witnesses be cross-examined. It's heard a lot about the general issues in this case. What can we streamline so that we're not you know, they've already spent a lot of time hearing yeah. this, their side of the story, but we've also cross-examined their witnesses um, pretty extensively. How do we sort of shape and streamline the issues? Um, but one thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, j- jurors really can understand technical issues. And I don't, I, I think they want to, um, you know, do a good job and really dig into the merits. And so we took our time Explaining the technology at issue so that we're not, um, you know, we're not trying to gloss past it. We want them to understand why this is valuable, why it's important and why it's so difficult to do. Um, And I think in this case, we, you know, we were able to do that, um, you know, both through cross-examination and direct examination. But I, I do think it's important to respect your jury enough to not try to water it down so much that, um, you can't explain to them the value of what's at issue here. So I think that's an important part of the balance but here. Um, you know, we really had the benefit of a case where there were a lot of documents, um, that really laid out uh, key parts of the story. Um, you know, well, by and large, this, the trial was 
about their admissions, about TSI's admissions by their own documents and their own testimony, combined with showing the value of what we had developed. And so um, I think when you have a case like that where you can really get the jury, look, you know, digging into the documents with you, focusing on the key testimony, um, you can keep them engaged, but also give them a way to follow along the chronology and the, um, you know, the, the, the manner in which the theft occurred and why it mattered so much to the other side. You know, I, I would only add that before trial, and remember the, the really good documents uh, we received, you know, 45 to 30 days before trial, uh, because before they'd always denied they even had an AVM. And suddenly we got all these documents. And, but we made the decision, uh, you know, to buck it up and, and just go forward with the trial date. And we thought about moving to realign the parties because we, by that time, we were the real plaintiff. We would have had a strong argument, but it's fairly unusual. Uh, in state court in San Antonio uh, to do that. But it, judges will do it. Uh, but we decided not to ask for it. And uh, because their affirmative case was so weak, we thought that they would look ridiculous putting it on. And they did. Uh, uh, and they spent, they were, uh, we try to be very efficient uh, with our use of time. And I think that was it 21 trial days. How many trial days were there, Kaufman? I, I think it's more than that, but I got to double check. It may be 27, but, but yeah, it lasted three months. Okay, we started, you know, uh, in January, and you know, we blew through uh, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day. I mean, it was just, you know, uh, you know, it was. Uh, we were living in a hotel room, uh, which I thought was a weird experience until the recent pandemic. Uh, but <laughs> the uh, but they spent uh, their affirmative case uh, talking all about their breach of contract claim. And by the way, one of them was for they claimed we breached the NDA, in <laughs> which the jury, you know, obviously uh, felt differently. But even if their theory had been correct, they were seeking $1 in damages. I mean, that's, you know, an indication of kind of the merits of, you know, this preemptive lawsuit that they filed. But at any rate, um, the and I think, you know, I've always heard jurors, uh, one of their biggest complaints is that lawyers keep repeating things over and over again as if the jury is uh, stupid or something. And that they're thinking, I've got it. Okay, look, I understand your argument. You know, maybe I agree with it. Maybe I don't. But, you know, you don't have to keep repeating it. Okay. And we were, we try to be, you know, very efficient about that. And so most of the trial days, however many there were, you know, were actually uh, in their part of the case. And, uh, uh, you know, and they didn't, uh, you know, focus too much on, having their witnesses talk about our claims and, and they waited until our case and we called those people adverse and, you know, but, you know, in any technology case, you have to have a balance between simplifying and streamlining the issues and not getting too down on the weeds, but you have to give the jury enough meat so that they understand 
what the technology is and as Calvin says, especially how valuable it is. So that's what we tried to focus on here. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from any time, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. Is there anything special that you all like to do when you have potentially a lot of exhibits or you have a document-heavy case and you really want the jury to dig into um dig into the documents, dig into certain exhibits or all of them, whatever. Um, how do y'all, you know, we've done it a few different ways where we'll have boards made of the exhibits we know we're going to point to a lot. And have, but I'm, I'm curious how y'all help um, the jury with like, you know, look at these documents of how you direct them and help them remember what documents are really essential. Well, we, we have one of the best uh, trial graphics consultants in the country that we try to use in every case. Uh, it's uh, uh, Matt Bowles and Matt Spalding at Legal Media Inc. Uh, in Houston. And they are just masters at trial director, putting the exhibits up and, you know, blowing up the sentences and, and they highlight as we go along, as the witness is reading the document or the, uh, the attorney is asking the question and, uh, and other than that, it's just, you know, preparing good demonstratives for use on cross. Uh, you know, there was a lot of video in this case, uh, because the, uh, TSI presentation of its, uh, AVM at the Quicken Loans Technology Conference was, uh, was videotaped. And so, for example, 
a related model that was at issue in the case was the sim- similarity score, which is a component of uh, an AVM. It's uh, something that compares how similar two particular properties are uh, in terms that relate to valuation. And they denied they had one. And in, in fact, when we went and finally got to review their uh, code on their computers, they produced a folder titled similarity score and it was empty. And they literally made the claim during trial that the fact that the folder was empty proved that they didn't have a similarity score uh, instead of, as we said, well, they had one and they deleted it. Okay. But fortunately, you know, a uh, former employee that we deposed at the end uh, testified that he had developed the similarity score for them. And the, the guy that they claim is the one guy at TSI who developed everything, even he testified uh, in his deposition and so later at trial that he saw the similarity score that the other TSI employee had developed. He saw it on his laptop at the office, uh, and yet it disappeared. Um, but more importantly, the, the videotape of the technology conference, the... Uh, one guy that TSI says developed everything is making the presentation and about how their model works and everything. And he shows a diagram that shows a similarity score module. And when he gets to that slide, he says, and that's the similarity score. We had that, we used that, uh, and it was developed by so-and-so. Uh, and so it just refuted, you know, so many of their arguments, uh, you know, it, it was just a very strong case on the evidence, to be honest. Yeah. I, on the issue of, oh. Go ahead. Go I was ahead. just going to add one thing um, to Yvonne's question about how you, you know, emphasize documents. Um, we would go back to chronologies a lot. So we would have showed documents and displayed them for the jury. But then we would go back to a timeline um, that showed where those documents fit in. And I thought that was really effective to reinforce how this was playing out. The other thing is that, um, Steve, when you're giving your summary, you mentioned that they, TSI tried to retrade the deal. Basically, they wanted to undo all the restrictions after the fact, after they had engaged in the misconduct and say, oh, here's a, here's a new deal, you know, agree to this. Um, we did a demonstrative, um, that showed, you know, did a comparison, basically a side-by-side of the restrictions they were trying to remove from the restrictions they had agreed to. And we had a couple of demonstratives like that, the changes they were trying to get past House Canary. And those side-by-side comparisons of two exhibits in a demonstrative where we could highlight what they were taking out and words they were changing, they were extremely effective with the jury because it's, until you saw them side by side, you didn't, it just reinforced how much title source was trying to get away with. Like they were going, you know, they were taking out critical restrictions and protections we had put in place and just seeing them like that really, I think hit home. Um, so that was an effective way we kind of, we tried to deal with that particular documentary evidence. Yeah. It's almost like they, uh, you know, had their plan A, which was to rewrite the deal. And then when, you know, they couldn't get the deal rewritten and then plan B is to string them out and then sue them. And then, uh, and then hopefully they'll just end up uh, selling for pennies on the dollar. Um, exactly. I wanted to go, 
I wanted to go back to the uh, the non-disclosure agreement uh, for a second because um, so, so one of the very first documents that was signed between the two parties was a non-disclosure agreement, and it seemed like it was a pretty comprehensive non-disclosure. Um, and I know that there, it, it, the one thing I was trying to get, get clear is it sounded like they that uh, Title Source was suing over the non-disclosure agreement, but at the same time was arguing over whether or not the non-disclosure agreement was ever signed in the first place. Uh, and was basically that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. The, the only the only copy that House Canary had, and the only copy that it was produced during discovery by TSI was a copy that House Canary had signed, but TSI had not signed. So, and yet when uh, TSI filed suit, uh, uh, Exhibit A to the complaint uh, was the the NDA with the one signature, and they were suing on it. And in various depositions, they all agreed. Yes, it was signed. We just don't have a copy. Uh, it's binding. You know, their CEO admitted that in deposition and at trial. And yet, towards the end of the case, I think they began to realize that things were not going their way. And so, literally, we would put a witness up and they would talk about the NDA. And then the TSI lawyer would cross examine them. And would examine their own witnesses and say, I want you to turn to the last page. Did TSI, is that, does their signature appear anywhere on this NDA? And they would say no. Okay. And so they were implying that, you know, it wasn't a valid contract uh, and that we, and I guess they would have argued that therefore we didn't take reasonable protections to protect our trade secrets. So therefore they're no longer trade secret. And uh, <laughs> at the end, I can't recall the circumstances, but uh, we had a true aha moment. <laughs> yes, the the very last day of the very last day that uh, that um that uh, the evidence was open, the night before, um, they had moved for a directed verdict on this issue about the unsigned NDA, and really was starting to. Um, you know, and, and just to back up, the claim they had filed was that we, House Canary had breached the NDA by telling investors that House Canary had a deal with Title Source. That was the claimed breach, and that's the breach for which they were seeking a dollar. So Max is totally right that they realized, oh, well, we'd be better off just claiming this agreement doesn't, you know, is invalid. And so, um, you know, it really started to... Um, get to our team because they were advancing this issue. And, you know, obviously before they sued, they must've thought they had a reason to sue on it. So we started digging and digging. And finally a member of our team found the agreement that it was executed by both sides, which was on a document uh, attached to an email that was on their privilege log on TSI's privilege log. Oh my goodness. Um, and, you know, we had, because this issue really only came up in the course of trial toward the end of trial, it wasn't until then that we really dug into, you know, to, to figure out, we knew we had seen it somewhere and there it was on the privilege log. Um, and at that point, uh, we were already in our, their, our case had, was done and, and their case they had put on their witnesses. Um, 
in rebuttal to our case. And so with no witnesses remaining, uh, the judge let us read that agreement into the record as evidence because uh, they had. Exactly. Because they had represented to the court that we that they had not signed the NDA. I mean, I I can't imagine Uh, not only how pissed off the jury must have been after hearing that, but and how pissed off the judge probably was. Uh, I mean, just well, it was worse than that because this came up initially. We're arguing about this outside the presence of the jury, of course. And so we say, well, fine, allow us re rebuttal. Let's reopen the evidence. They haven't, you know, been charged yet. Uh, and we'll call their uh, one of their witnesses to authenticate this document. Okay, they were saying that's oh, not authentic or something, even though you know it was on their privilege log. But whatever. The and at that point, <laughs> the handlers uh, of the CEO uh, escorted him very quickly out of the courtroom, along with their general counsel. And they fled the building so that they would not be available to be called to testify about this document. And so that's why we ended up having to just read it to the jury and publish it to the jury uh, before evidence closed. Oh, man. Yeah, so they just ran out of the courtroom. Right, but that's nothing that the jury saw. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, Max and I will sometimes pass each other sticky notes. Uh, and, uh, Max handed me a sticky note describing each person as they were leaving the building, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they were all there for the proceeding. And then one by one, when they hear us saying, oh, we're just, we'll just reopen it and put somebody else on the stand. They just bolted. And so, uh, Max handed me a note saying so-and-so's left the building, so-and-so's left the building. And then the last one was PSI has left the building because <laughs> there were no witnesses left for a jury call. My gosh. And were they there most of the other time when the jury when the jury was in the box? Oh, absolutely. Because the jury notices that like they notice when people are gone. Yeah. The other time that um, the CEO was not present uh, was because he was which was probably the second to last week of trial um, was likely because and it's a little bit of speculation, but the at that time, Title Source announced that it was rebranding itself as a new company called Amrock. Um, and Amrock uh, was going to be a fintech company, a financial uh, services business. And they were going to be doing things like using valuation models and analytics. Uh, so that happened pretty close to the end of trial. Um, and that was a time at which their CEO did not attend trial. And as a result, we did call him back to the stand because it turned out that this rebranding had actually been 18 months in the making, right. also not disclosed to us in discovery. Um, it's something we literally found out r- reading a press release that came out while we were in trial that said, we are now AMROC um, and we are offering this fleet of services that go beyond just doing standard appraisal. So all this so time the, that the they're called up, the team that, pulled up their trademark applications and it showed that they had been planning uh, and described Amrock as a fintech, you know, valuation company, and you know exactly what we are, our direct competitor. That they've been planning that for years. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I just—it's uh, it, almost mind-boggling how many mistakes uh, a party could make at trial, you know, right in front of the jury. 
Uh, I mean, that that had to be another issue that, that did not make the jury happy after they had been saying that they didn't have an AVM. And of course, it, it comes out that they do. But then not only that, but they, they were you know planning on rebranding themselves as basically a company that was going to be doing the same thing. For sure. And I, I think that uh, there were, you know, various delays in terms of the trial time along the way. And perhaps they didn't think we would still be in trial. And somehow they would have been able to announce that rebranding after the jury had already um, been discharged because the trial had extended so long that that didn't happen. Um, and obviously we had to take some of the jury's time to call back the CEO and ask him about this issue. Uh, which, you know, we hadn't intended to do otherwise and put some of these documents before him. And so, um, you know, that uh, uh, the fact that it came as a surprise to all of us was, um, you know, I'm sure not lost on the jury. I mean, you could tell they were not happy because my understanding from the appellate brief was that they awarded basically the max that they could in punitive damages, that there's like a two to one ratio or so. There's a two-to-one ratio, and juror note number one was, can they award more? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to mention. So they came out and said, can we award more than $403.2 million or something? And uh, I mean, you know, to get a question like that when you're waiting on a verdict, uh, oh, to feel pretty nice. Well, I, we kept the team demure because I've been burned <laughs> on that before. Okay? Yes, yeah, Send yeah. us a calculator and use that was, you know. Oh, you yeah. Know, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it can always just yeah. be one person asking, so you never know. But uh, That's what I said. That's what I said, exactly. Uh, still, you know, you, it, 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 it's a great question, especially, you know, looking back and it turns out the way that it did. Uh, in, in Texas, do you have a chance to talk to the jury? And did you get a chance to talk to any of the, the jury members? We, we could ask uh, the jury members to talk to us, uh, but we have not. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if any of them had anything to say about what they thought of the trial. We uh, don't know, we, Steve. Uh, have intentionally not contacted them. <laughs> right, uh, right. Right. You know. So. Gotcha. So uh, one thing I read about, and I was just wondering if this was a theme during trial, but I read in one of the articles written about this case about, uh, you know, essentially this theme of the uh, uh, dinosaur and how dinosaurs capture and eat prey and uh, in that they, you know, basically uh, refer to, you know, the prey as the startups or the, the small entrepreneurs. Was that a theme in trial or is that something that was just used in the in the article afterwards? It, it was not exactly, it wasn't a theme. That that was a very creative journalist who was trying to make okay. a, an interesting story. But it was uh, uh, a, a theme at trial that uh, once we found out about this AMROC thing and that they'd been planning it for years and it fit right in with telling us, oh, we're, we'll never develop our own models when they'd already formed the committee to develop the models, okay, uh, before they, you know, signed the first license agreement. Uh, but the, uh, the, the theme, uh, and this was not a major theme. The major theme was just, you know, the clear theft and fraud. Uh, but the, uh, it was a minor theme that the reason they were changing to AMROC was because they realized that the old school title business uh, is uh, on its way out. Uh, in fact, I mean, the number of people, uh, the number of appraisers declines every year because 
as the older ones retire, there aren't enough newer people becoming appraisers and everything's becoming automated. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the same reason why they wanted our AVM in the first place. In other words, the Quicken Loans bankers were losing, you know, 30% of their leads because they couldn't get a, a valuation number back fast enough uh, using the old method of sending an appraiser to the house, you know, inspecting the property and so forth. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it is true. Uh, and House Canary has a, you know, they're in this business and have a number of uh, big name clients. Um, but in the, you know, companies that are looking to either value a single property in less than a second, or suppose uh, uh, one company, company A is trying to sell a portfolio of mortgages to company B. Well, they can run all 10,000 addresses through the AVM. And in the matter, maybe that takes an hour or two or more. Okay. But in a few hours, they get valuations that show how much of that portfolio is underwater, how much of it has a lot of equity in it and so forth. And, you know, it allows, uh, you know, large companies, financial companies to make the decision on portfolio wide transactions. And that's the future uh, of the valuation industry. Okay. Or at least part of it. Yeah, and and I think that I the, the while it wasn't so explicitly about a dinosaur, the idea that um, this is a company that was simply not equipped to deal with where the changes are going. That was very clear. Um, and you know, one of their um, defenses or responses was that, look, we already have all of our own historical appraisal data we could use because we from our actual appraisal so of course we could use that for our own modeling but they couldn't and their documents show that um, you know they absolutely had to reach out and utilize and draw on a company that had the ability to know what to do with it um, because they couldn't so I, I think the theme that they were feeling and there's a document that says um, you know we better hurry up because they're seeing the evolution in the market for what is, you know, the services, what's being um, demanded for real estate, uh, where the industry is heading, and they know that they are not in a position to do it on their own. They haven't been able to. And so I think that theme was really clear that, um, you know, we had lots of evidence of them actually engaging in that. And the motivation behind that was really clear, too. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos 
stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call in the legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal Technology Services, uh, give them a try. I have to, We have to talk about some of the next level petty stuff ha- that happened. We talked about how the, um, the CEO of House Canary was served at the trade show. But I was curious about the... Um, I, I, about the details, but it, it sounded like Title Source did something with fake addresses mm-hmm. to kind of... Yes. So in order to set up their breach of contract claim, there was a provision in uh, uh, the contract, that, uh, one of the contracts that said uh, the hit rate has to be above, I don't know, 90% or some percent. Okay. The hit rate means when I punch in an address like 123 Main Street, uh, I get a valuation report and all the, you know, uh, you know, thousands of points of data that go with it, not just the re- like a re- PDF report, but actually the data, okay, which they could store and use later to train and refine their own models. But, uh, and they began, everything worked fine for the first 150,000 reports that they uh, downloaded with the millions of points of data. But uh, towards the end, when they had decided that either they would, you know, they would give us a choice, either uh, House Canary would sign a, a contract that basically reversed all of the prohibitions uh, restricting TSI from using our data to reverse engineer our models or create derivative products uh, or even to warehouse our data, um, all of which they did. Uh, if we didn't sign an amendment reversing all of that, then they would sue us. And so to set up their breach of contract claim, they began feeding false addresses to the AVM and said, oh, see, the hit rate is below the required percentage. But they would literally put in uh, just nonsense addresses and and fake addresses. So, of course, there was no hit because the property didn't exist. But some of them they were literally taunting House Canary in a way because one of the addresses they entered wasn't even an address. It said, uh, what is it? Kill the vendor, kill the fee. Is that what it said, Calvin? It, 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 it was wiping the vendor, yeah. wipe the fee. Wipe. Yeah. Yeah. There was also one we didn't re- fixate on too much at trial that involved butts. If I recall, um, well, honey buns or something like that. Honey buns. Anyway. That's what it was. Honey buns. 
Tiny buttons. <laughs> but anyway, they fed those nonsense addresses in in order to try and set up a, a, a false breach of contract claim. Man, that yeah. is savage. Well, and one of the other things I think we should point out, Yvonne, is that even after they, I think after the, the lawsuit had been brought, they continued to download uh, reports and data uh, from House Canary. Is that right? I mean, even after you guys were in litigation. Yeah, it's true. And uh, they didn't terminate the contract formally until after they had filed suit. I guess they thought House Canary might sue for the money it was owed and they wanted to get out ahead of it. And the CEO, uh, you know, uh, well, let me say it this way. It's, you know, beyond dispute that they continued to download tens of thousands of value reports even after they had filed suit. And, uh, in, in fact, they, I think they downloaded some, they kept downloading even after they had formally terminated the contract. I think somebody didn't tell someone in the other department or something, I guess, but, um, you know, I sent them a, a letter or an email saying, you know, Hey, you're still downloading the value reports. And, uh, eventually they stopped. Jeez. Um, well, I wanted to ask you all uh, uh, to uh, just give us an overview of how you uh, approach the damages in this case and, and, and ask for what you did. And I, and I should point out to our listeners that uh, the verdict form in this case is 52 pages long um, and is one of the most complex verdict forms I've ever seen. Um, so talk a, a little bit about how you presented damages and got them to the, the point uh, where you got... Um, I mean, two hundred one point six million for trade secret, and then thirty three point eight million for fraud. So, Kalpana is all damages. I want to say one thing about the verdict form. Yeah, um, the judge uh, was super fair to both sides, and uh, all the way to the end. And uh, the uh, uh, out of the presence of the jury, a couple of times he did admonish the parties to instruct their. Uh, their clients not to lie on the stand. Uh, but of course, none of our witnesses have gone on the stand yet. Uh, but the uh, that was outside the presence. But he was super fair in all his rulings. And uh, the other side really tried to load up the verdict form to be as long and as confusing as possible. And I think they've, again, thought that the jury would not be smart enough to answer yes here and no there and yes here and no there uh and so forth and of course at the end of the day uh you know that turned out not to be true anyway uh kalpana was in charge of uh our damages and so i will let her explain uh, how we got there uh sh sure so a lot of times in especially in trade secret cases um, you can look at the models for damages a couple of different ways. You could look at um, development costs. You could look at lost profits. Uh, Texas and other courts have talked about having a flexible approach. But one common formulation, especially where the theft is happening against the startup, is to look at the value of the trade secret to the party that stole the trade secret. Um, because you can have a startup and they can develop a trade secret and maybe their ability to capitalize on that um, is more limited. So you don't really want to look at what profits they lost uh, or their development costs. 
um, might be significant, but might not nearly reflect the kind of benefit the defendant's going to make of it, or the in this case, uh, title source. Um, and so that's a common approach when you have a startup company to look at the value of the trade secret to the party that's stealing it. Here, there was a lot of evidence um, before we even get to the quantitative part of it, the math part of it. There was a lot of evidence about how valuable this was to title source. First, it wanted to be able to use um, valuation analytics in connection with the appraisals that its appraisers were doing for homes. Um, but then title source was also a pro- providing those valuation analytics to Quicken Loans. Um, and of course, Quicken Loans is, um, you know, massive mortgage business and they have bankers that are utilizing the valuation model every time they deal with customers, when they're talking about how much equity is in their home, when they're looking at refinancing, when they're, um, you know, evaluating how best to target new customers for a loan. And so, that has extraordinary value to title source because it is servicing its sister affiliate um, Quicken Loans this way. Uh, and so that's what we focused on in the damages model is the, the, the use that we expected title source to make of our valuation analytics um, by the value that they had already placed on a really accurate, highly useful AVM. Um, so their own internal documents show that they had used uh, another AVM product for um, $11 a use. That means that every time that they were generating that AVM, they were paying $11. And that's part of the reason they wanted to have our technology is so that they wouldn't have to pay that transaction cost. They could have you know unlimited numbers of uses without having to pay $11 a cost. Um, but in thinking about damages, we use that $11 um, times their use uh, and what how they looked at using the AVM. And we base that on uh, three different buckets. One is title sources used by its appraisers. How many appraisals did they do in a year um, for which they would want to be able to check it against an analytic model? And then Quicken Loans is um, being able to pursue the bulk leads that it gets that goes out and it purchases these bulk leads of customers to follow up with. And it wants to be able to use the valuation metric when it does that. Um, and then the incoming leads, which are, you know, people calling with inquiries about their home loan or other kinds of inquiries where they may just want to pitch them on a potential um, loan product. And so through that, we came up with a number of expected uses over a two-year period where they would be um, utilizing their AVM that was built on our technology. And that is um, how the $200 million number came about based on that projected use, which, you know, we, there were uses that we didn't account for specifically in that model that we, the jury heard testimony about. They heard about other kinds of plans that, um, you know, Title Source and Quicken had, like being able to send email blasts to customers about, uh, here's the va- current value of your home. Are you interested in a refi? Are you interested in some other product? So um, that's that's how we got to the numerical calculation. We also offered the jury um, an alternative damages model, a reasonable royalty model, and um, in you know in IP cases, a reasonable royalty model is, is a little different from the value of the trade secret to the defendant, which is like what value did this 
company get by just going and stealing our IP? That's a bigger number. The reasonable royalty model is if these two parties had sat down at the table and House Canary had agreed to license its technology, even though um, it has never done that, um, its trade secrets, and would never do that. But if, if in a hypothetical world it sat down and agreed to license its IP to title source, what deal would they have agreed on? And we came up with an alternative um, model that was $64 million that was in the jury form. Um, so we had the jury find, make a finding as to both types of models for the trade secret misappropriation. And then when we got to the point of entering judgment, we elected the, the, the larger number. Um, the fraud claim is actually based on a, a different issue. And as Max mentioned, there were two sort of buckets of technology. One is the valuation model. The other was the software appraiser product, which we built. Um, really bespoke, like it was a custom product for title source. That's what the appraisers were supposed to go out and use to um, do use this appraisal software in the field. And title source had basically promised House Canary that they were going to make this appraisal software the industry standard. Like all their appraisers were going to use it, including their contract appraisers. And then those contract appraisers would in turn be using it for um, their appraisals for other companies, not just title source. That was the whole, you know, predicate on which House Canary went and built this. And so um, that was a, the damages for the fraud claim was based on the, the profits that House Canary would have realized if Title Source had done what it said it would do in rolling out the, uh, the appraisal software product. Um, so that's the um, 33.8 million uh, damages figure that you, in the verdict form. And then we were entitled to punitive um, for, for theft of trade secrets. You're entitled to statutory uh, damages for willful conduct, which uh, can go up to 2x of what you got on the compensatory. Um, and then for the fraud, there was a finding of punitive conduct. And so we also got um, a 2x punitive award on that. And so the jury basically gave you exactly what you asked for. They did, yes. Yeah. They they really had little choice, I think. Uh, this is my own view of it, uh, because the rebuttal evidence on damages was almost non-existent. Uh, all they had to give, do was go up and say, "Oh, you say we're going to use it, uh, you know, uh, X million times a year, and that's not true. Um, you know, we don't use it that much." But no one ever said that. You know, they didn't give that information to their damages expert for him to get up and say that or dispute, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that information doesn't exist. I don't think it's true. I think their Correct. pieces are probably even broader than what we estimated. And that's why they didn't offer a different use number. Their main response was, you know, that this was the the contract. Um, had a consideration in it, $5 million, and that that should be the damages number. But the contract had so many other um, components to it, including that uh, it was going to allow us to become the industry standard in the software uh, for, uh, for appraisal software. We were going to get access to the historical appraisal data that they had, which our expert valued at in excess of $90 million that 
Um, we had all these restrictions that prevented them from entering into the market of valuation analytics. So that would guarantee House Canary the ability to serve Quicken Loans in that capacity and keep out um, that competition. So, um, you know, the, the jury really heard about how the dynamic of this relationship was that, you know, title source was not stepping into House Canary's path. It was going to help House Canary become, um, you know, the standard and the leader in this space and, and the company to serve uh, Quicken Loans' valuation needs. And by taking that away and trying to do it for them, they were, they were, you know, really destroying House Canary's position in the market beyond just saying, you know, we owed you some money. And the jury, you know, understood that. So uh, their rebuttal was kind of like it went on the, the contract price, but we weren't, the contract didn't sell them our algorithms and our software. In other words, it's kind of like if you rent a car from Hertz for $150 and steal the car, you know, you don't owe just $150. Right. So it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. So what is the, uh, what's the current status of the case? Is it on appeal now? It is on appeal in the San Antonio Court of Appeals. Um, oral argument was uh, in February of this year, and the briefing has been completed on that. So we're right. making a ruling from the court. Well, good luck. I read somewhere that the the verdict is uh, is uh, increasing with interest at about a hundred thousand dollars a day. Is that right? That I believe that's right, <laughs> based on uh, based on our rough math. Yes. Right, 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 exactly. And also, the judgment is now somewhere in excess of eight hundred million. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic work. And I also read somewhere that uh, when at the beginning of the year that this was not uh, viewed as like one of the main cases for Sussman Godfrey. It was, uh, it, it, it was, you know, among many cases that would be tried, but wasn't looked at as, uh, you know, going to be the the biggest verdict for the firm, which has had many, many, uh, you know, great verdicts. We're always cautiously optimistic. I think that Calvin and I and the team on the case uh, always thought that uh, we were going to win uh, and that there was so much good evidence in our favor. Uh, and so we were very confident of that. But, you know, uh, we were always uh, cautious. But, uh, uh Sussman Godfrey has a lot of big cases, and so I can see why someone might think that. Right, right, right. Well, uh, well, uh, Kalpana and, and Max, this has been a great, uh, a great discussion. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that our listeners know about this case that we haven't uh, haven't talked about? I don't think so. It means we did a good job, Steve. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you, got, you guys really got it. Got in the weeds, so it's great. Um, <laughs> It certainly was sort of a once in a lifetime kind of case, the way the issues came to be. And I think Max and I both feel like it's always a good reminder that, um, you know, you stay on your toes and you pay attention to what's happening, especially in trial, because this was a case where there was a lot of things emerging and coming out during the trial that we heard for the first time. 
yeah. or documents we'd go back and find. The you know the ability to be nimble about that really helped us here, especially in a case where a lot of these these issues were percolating and coming out and unfolding right before our eyes over the yeah. course of this trial. Yeah, and it was we did have great evidence. But of course, we also had a great team. You know, we had three uh, uh, younger lawyers uh, on the case with us who did a fantastic job. And I think everybody was, you know, you often working 20 hours a day, you know, to really just ferret out, you know, and, and distill, uh, you know, exactly what we wanted to do in the courtroom uh, every day. And we should also mention Ricardo Cedillo um, of Davis Cedillo and Mendoza, who was with us at trial, um, who, uh, you know, was, is a, an extraordinary trial lawyer and being able to try the case with him and together was, was made it very special for us. Absolutely. Ricardo is one of the best trial lawyers in the country, for sure. Yeah, he's, he seemed like quite a character. And I read one quote by him and said he's not always right, but he's never in doubt, which is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like Ricardo. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, just a great job, guys. And let me remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Title Source Inc. versus House Canary Inc., which is tried in, in uh, Bear County, Texas, uh, in uh, March, uh, January through March of 2018 and resulted in a $706.2 million verdict. And we've been talking to Kalpana Srinivasan and Max Tribble uh, from Sussman Godfrey. And you can look them up at sussmangodfrey.com. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Yvonne and Steve. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.